They have a where they have a practice of contemplating death. I think it's five times a day. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's fucking beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, spoiler alert: everybody dies. Like, that's right. we're like, <laughs> still I feel it inside its cage, sounding a dull tattoo. I want, I want, mm. but I can't open it. There's no key. I can't wear it on my sleeve or tell you from the bottom of it how I feel. Here, it's all yours now, but you'll have to take me too. Hey y'all, this is our third part of our book discussion on Robin Rod Owen's new book, Love and Rage. In this episode, I interview my good, good girlfriend, my good Judy, Renee. Renee has been a grief counselor for over 10 years. She is now transitioning into becoming a death doula. We discuss in this episode the complexities of our identities as queer people of color. We talk about what it means to be embodied or disembodied based off of what we're working with through those complexities. And we talk about what it's like to be a spiritual warrior in a mostly white spiritual community, the difficulties, the challenges, and the opportunities that that presents. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this intimate conversation with my good, good girlfriend, my good Judy, Renee. I want to choose freedom. Mm. You know, like, I want, I want to choose freedom. I want to choose liberation. I want to choose. I think of you so often. I hear, I hear you so often, almost daily, truly. Um, I know I've said this to you before, but it remains to be profound. That conversation that we had when you just looked at me and you said, I am more interested in having a brave space than a, than a safe space. Yeah. Yeah. I just, I revisit it often. So that's where I am. I am reminding myself that I prefer a brave space than a safe space. <laughs> yeah. And that space, that space travels with us everywhere. Yeah. I'm I'm so I'm we're in right now just so you know this is probably going to be a part of the episode and uh, <laughs> we're just, you know I I also have a little bit of guilt and sadness around this being the first time that we've spoken in a long time and wanting us to connect off of this uh, maybe uh, sometime later this week or this weekend if you have the time yeah, yeah I would love I I would absolutely love that. Um, so I'm also going to, uh, anyway, so yeah, we'll, we'll jump in. So that, that uh, I want to just take a minute to touch on that space that you were just talking about. And then um, I may ask you to do a couple of things and you can always say no, if something else is on your heart. <laughs> um, yeah. But one of the things that my whole family is doing is we're actually consciously and unconsciously examining how, rage shows up in our embodiment as black folk and how that rage um, gets projected and acted out uh, onto each other. And it's been this really heartbreaking and beautiful wrestling match between my family and I. And one of the things that Lama Rad says in the book is that, and, and this is something that I really have to grapple with because so Renee and I, I'm talking to the listeners now, Renee and I uh, were, <laughs> were a part of a spiritual community um, called Shambhala. Shambhala um, is currently still a spiritual community. Um, it was founded by a man named Chongyong Trumpa Rinpoche. He was one of the first people who brought Tibetan Buddhism from the West to the United States. And he created uh, a bunch of land centers or spaces where people could practice meditation and study Buddhism all around the country. And one of those centers, which is where uh, Renee and I met, are in, is in Boston, Boston uh, Shambhala Center. And I'm going to remember why I'm mentioning this, because it just left me. <laughs> <laughs> why am I mentioning Shambhala? Um, oh, oh, because one of the things that Lama Rod says is that when we really begin to investigate our, heart, our heartbreak, it is actually quite dangerous. It can be very dangerous. And when I think of that, I think of two things. I, I think of the sheer terror <laughs> that that brings up for me to think of, damn, liberation is dangerous. Ah, do I really want to do this? <laughs> and on the other hand, I think of 
what the other side of the coin could be, which is this faux white spirituality that Renee and I have talked about, experienced, raged over, tried to dismantle in some <laughs> of these communities. <laughs> and so the alternative of not tap tapping into the, to the grief I've already experienced and I'm actually no longer interested in. Mm. And so I'm willing, slowly but surely, I think I'm getting ready to embrace some of the danger of tapping into what's underneath the anger and the rage And I have this, I have this um, vivid memory of, of Renee and I, uh, we went up to see um, Lamarad actually during one of his first talks. I think he was talking about rage in that talk that we went to see him in Brookline. <laughs> it for sure came up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Renee and I were just like running around Manhattan, like screaming, like how mad we were. Uh, being two people of queer people of color in spiritual communities where we were experiencing so much trauma in the world and looking for um, some solace and we weren't finding it where we felt like we we could. And so I think it's really magical that you and I are having one of our first conversations in this time over this book, given the path that we've been on together and separately. And um yeah, I just want to, is there, is there anything you want to share just off the top of your heart right now? And then I can ask you some more specific questions. Um, I, I am, I am, I am mired in, in, in fondness right now for um, just that place of, of raw emotion that, that we were in um, that weekend. Um, and I and I am flooded with with gratitude um, that mm -hmm. that you were that you, you were with me um, in it. I just you know I can't imagine any other way. And I think it's just so beautiful to remember that space. Although I have really complicated feelings um, attached to the memory of it, um, I. It's it's how you know it's absolutely how I got here where we can have this conversation, and I just yeah. I just I feel you know, I feel really 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 grateful. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I just consider you my like my my spiritual rage buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yes, best title ever. <laughs> <laughs> my spiritual rage buddy, totally. I've never been able to express the raw rage. Uh, freely in a way. I mean, there were times when we were expressing rage, and I was like, "Is this healthy?" Like, I remember I had like lockjaw at one point. <laughs> <laughs> but it had space with you, which I'm yeah. so honored. So, could you just tell the people who are listening how you identify? Uh, you know, any important mm -hmm. socio demographic identities that would be critical to this conversation. Also. Um, what you do for a living if you find that to be important i think what you do is critically important in this time and also if you wanted to share that poem with us yeah um identity such a you and i've had this conversation so much and it's so loaded um i'm queer i am gender queer I use she and they pronouns interchangeably um i am arab middle eastern and white um, I am light skinned. I say that just to, to name the privilege that goes along with that. Uh, I am Buddhist. I am a lover. I am polyamorous. And I am witchy. Yay! <laughs> yeah. That was gorgeous. I, I wish you could check all of those off when you like do your, you know. Your yeah, activity. so many boxes that the census does not ask. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What about our witches, yo? <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i'm yeah. deep in my witchiness at the at the moment um yeah that's awesome so. and what do you do 
Yeah. Oh, so that has actually kind of changed since last yeah. time we talked. <laughs> so I will just, I will set up, I will answer, I will answer with some context to the way in which you asked me, um, because my, uh, uh, much of my professional history is in human and social services. Um, I quit my job, um, I guess it was about a year ago, and did some did some reexamining and kind of just landed um, oddly uh, at our applied research lab at Duke University, um, <laughs> which uh, is mm -hmm. jury's out on in terms of its fit. But it's um, it's been a really interesting experience. It is, mm -hmm. you know, it is not my passion, but it is good work and with lovely people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I was gonna um. Because the last time we spoke, you were you were working as a social worker, is that right? Yeah, yeah, I was doing social work uh, with foster youth, um, not a caseworker, which I think is just a little bit. Um, you know, I always want to be clear that when I say that I do social work, I'm not typically doing casework. Yeah. Some of the things that when people think social worker don't apply to me. Uh huh. Am I? You know, now that I know that you've transitioned into doing something different, I have a lot of questions about that, obviously. Okay. And, <laughs> You know, I was going to lean in with um, trying to understand how you apply mindfulness and meditation to how you work with clients. And that's not relevant right now, although it could be when we're kind of reflecting on the journeys that we've been on. Mm -hmm. But I think I will hold space for some of that inquiry and ask you if you could give us the poem or the song that you've provided, and then we'll kind of lean in to some of the context of the book. Yeah, I went um, a lot of different ways with how I was, what I was going to choose. Um, and I landed on this. Heart to heart. It's neither red nor sweet. It doesn't melt or turn over, break or harden. So it can't feel pain, yearning, regret. It doesn't have a tip to spin on. It isn't even shapely, just a thick clutch of muscle, lopsided, mute. Still, I feel it inside its cage, sounding a dull tattoo. I want, I want, mm. but I can't open it. There's no key. I can't wear it on my sleeve or tell you from the bottom of it how I feel. Here, it's all yours now, but you'll have to take me to. Mm. And that's by Rita Dove. Could you say that last line one more time? Mm -hmm. um, how far back do you go? Uh, I'll, I'll start here and let me know if you want me to go farther back. But yeah. here, it's all yours now, but you'll have to take me to. Here, it's all yours now, but you'll have to take me to. Mm-hmm. Whew. Whew. Oh my goodness. Yes. I, I have. Yeah. Why that poem? Uh, you know, it's not the Janelle Monet I thought I was going to open with. Um, that's Janelle. That's right. It's okay. not, it's not Janelle. No, but I was going to, I was going to, I was going to open with Janelle Monet. Um, that's Rita Dove. And, you know, I, I had this moment where I was like, where am I? What do I want to open with? Like, how, what do I want to, what do I want to say in someone else's words? And I was like, burn it to the ground with love. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went Janelle Monet, and I also tried to go Prince. Um, but that's, but my, today my heart is so fucking tender that I just, I just had to, I just had to, to bear it in <laughs> someone else's, you know, someone else's beautiful words. My, my tenderness. Would you say that you're experiencing today the, the grief or the heartbreak that's underneath anger? Yeah. I'm yeah. also experiencing some anger, but I am, my relationship to anger is, it's complex. I mean, everybody's is, right? Um, I think mine often, uh, mine often, 
gets swallowed in, in grief. Um, not always historically healthily, not in, always in a way in which I can process that grief. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah. But today it is a it is maybe a more healthier connected <laughs> experiencing of, of of grieving that is that is attached to some anger and rage. Mm, so you're still able to feel the relationship between the grief and the rage because so often for me it's like I, it's one or the other and I and I say. You know, one of the things that I wonder if Lamarad is going to do next is write a book about grief. Mm -hmm. And he, he prefaces, he always kind of says that the grief is underneath the, uh, underneath the anger and the rage. So, the, so I almost have this qualitative assumption of like, if I'm in the grief, I'm doing better <laughs> than if I'm in anger. And what I hear you saying is you're, you're, you're making it less linear. You're giving it space. It's like, actually, they're both in the room. <laughs> they're cousins yeah. or they're brothers. And there's a dynamic happening between the two of them. And I wonder for you how that dynamic plays out. You know, what I see is that when I need to get something done, I, 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 if they're both in the room, I'll take the hand of my anger and my rage and I'll walk out the door and I'll leave the grief behind. And the, the, the big fear I had, you know, starting with this podcast with you today, this interview was that I challenged myself to allow the grief to sort of saturate my words and saturate my desire to connect with you. So I'm a different interviewer today and I'm taking a risk with that, but I wonder for you how you um, see your rage and your grief playing with each other, interacting with each other, um, and how you navigate that interaction. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think there are, there are ways in which it, it's really helpful, healthy. Like sometimes, sometimes they play. Um, mm. It doesn't feel great, right? Like there's like, it, saying that they play makes it sound like it's enjoyable <laughs> it's not um but there is kind of a like a if I can remove myself from it and I think about those times in which they're occupying space um interacting together there's a bit of a conversation that's happening of like um sort of who gets the space um, mm. of like who's who gets to talk um and sometimes it is more playful sometimes it's like it's it sometimes it's happening simultaneously in a way that is you know it's almost comical because it's like because i don't because i don't know what to <laughs> i don't know where to where to land um i think i'm getting better at, at trying to create space um for, for both of them and have a little distance and watch them both um play you know and that's like best case scenario you know and and you and i have had lots of conversations about my history of dissociation and so there are also times when um you know i do it more consciously now it's more of a of a choice it sounds like an odd thing to say to, to say it's a choice to dissociate but there are times when i'm like you know, I step back and I'm like, all right, all right, y'all work it out. And I'll, I guess I, cause it's too much for me. I need a break. Mm. Um, mm. I don't know that that really answers your question. <laughs> no, it absolutely um, does. It makes that's, total yeah. sense. It makes total sense. What you're, what you're helping me understand as a queer person who's situated within uh, a bunch of other intersections, who's also someone who for a very long time, I don't know how many years you worked as a social worker and of uh, you know assisting other folks, but mm -hmm. that one of the ways that you have coped with your emotional complexity is that you have had to distance yourself in a way that only you can describe, you know, with the consequence or what the experience is. But I think so many queer people of color who are, you know, everything from differently abled to um, you know, disadvantaged. I think this is how so many of us cope. And I imagine, just to kind of pin what you used to do, I imagine 
that um, you were witnessing this happen in some of your clients and also witnessing it happening in, in you. Um, uh, not maybe not in that moment, but you know, the language that you just gave me around how you distance yourself from it to me is someone who's show, denotes someone who's worked a lot with, 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 with being able to know where they are. It's mm -hmm. a skill, you know, and um, it kind of leads me into my question of, of why, uh, why did you separate yourself from, from that type of work? Was it more for self-care because of these complexities or was it something else? Um, so my mom was diagnosed with cancer is, is one of the, is, is, is part of the story. Um, and the organization that I was working for, um, was in a bit of crisis, um, perpetually. It's, it was a small nonprofit, um, and had all the things that come along with a small nonprofit in the mental health field. Um, and I couldn't manage multiple crises. I chose not to try to manage multiple crises simultaneously. And so I chose my family. Um, yeah, it's beautiful. And as I was, and as I distanced myself from it, I really wanted to see, um, I wanted to listen to my heart for a little bit, mm. um, to see what, what she wanted. And where I landed as a job is not what she what she was saying, um, <laughs> just to be real clear, and it's this is not my profession, right? I'm not going into applied research, um, but what I actually think is next, because I as I was listening to my heart, she was like, death, <laughs> um, mm. and so I actually am I'm taking a death doula certification course next month, wow. um, and my intention is to sort of explore end of life work hence the witch yeah <laughs> yes yeah. renee well, yes i i i love that i love that last time I, I i sat with lama rod he was saying there are so many queer people of color who are offering what they need for themselves mm. they're 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 these wounded people that that have intelligence and know something through their own woundedness and their own trauma and they're offering the water that they need to be watering themselves and who knows when it's time to bust out there um, and offer again and who knows how we should bust out there and offer again but I'm doing a very similar thing of just taking time to listen to my heart to ask my heart what is the next iteration of um, my process and who I am and not clinging, trying not to cling to any idea of who I should be or how I should show up and it feels very dangerous and very liberating. And so I I fucking support you as a fucking death doula. I think that is <laughs> fucking awesome. Thank you. And you'd be so fucking bad at it. You'd be so badass at it. I think it's a good use of like at this point almost decades of of, you know, human and social services. Um I think it's, you know, and I also think that we just need to examine the way that we look at death in this culture. Um, like, I just think, you know, we have, it, it, it's really connected to a lot of harm, our relationship to death. Um, and I feel really, you know, I feel really grateful for Buddhism for a different perspective on that. Um, yeah, I want to ask you more about that. So yeah. how has Buddhism helped you embrace a different uh, perception of death? And how do you see uh, our reaction to death being a representation of violence and harm? Yeah. Um, I think Buddhism and its, its best. And I, you know, when I talk about Buddhism, as you well know, I, I feel like it's always qualified. Um, because I think Buddhism is also done really, can be done really violently, um, yeah. as, we, as we've sort of experienced in, in various ways. Mm. Um, but there's there's talk of of death in Buddhism. There's a there is a relationship to death in, in Buddhism. 
Um, I, I think, you know, I think it's, I think it's in Bhutan specifically, but I don't, but I'm not sure that that's the only place, um, you know, where they have a, where they have a practice of contemplating death. I think it's five times a day. Yeah. Um, and I just think that's fucking beautiful. Like, like, spoiler alert, everybody dies. Like, we're like, (laughs) pretending like it's not going to happen isn't doing us any favors. Um, It's just another, like, way that we try to cling to something that isn't real and set us up for failure. Like, we set ourselves up for, for devastation and, and, we don't know what to give ourselves. We don't know what to get give each other for this in, for this for this like one inevitability. And I, that to me it seems so bonkers. Like like we're building lives around avoiding one of the only things that is actually certain, while trying to cling to false certainty that is just going to devastate us like it just it doesn't it just doesn't make any sense <laughs> would you say that capitalism is like an anti-death wish or like the capitalism is built off of our our terror of death yeah. yeah yeah i think i think and i would even take it like a step further back um and say that it's all rooted in colonization Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't have to, in order to dehumanize and slaughter, you have to separate yourself from, from the experience of death, right? Like, I don't yeah. think that's, and I think, you know, capitalism is obviously a, a, a product of colonization. I mean, they're, they're, they're one and the same, really. It's just not that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, to be able to, and it's so interesting how death is one of the weapons. It's, it's such a weird perversion of it that death is one of the, one of the tools that capitalism uses to dominate. However, it's almost like a vampiric kind of, I will kill you, I will take your life, your freedom, your liberation, yep. so that I may have my own and my children may have their own and i think potentially what we're witnessing is the um you know uh angel kilda williams always says is that the the um, the 400 year american project is finally coming to an end and that all of the energy all the stolen lives there's this cashier's check that's finally being you know cashed in um and of course there are there are efforts to stop the you know the laws of the universe or you know as one thing comes up something must go down you know opposite force has an equal there's there's always going to be some twisted um anti-life anti-humanity effort to change the course correction that is occurring of course we see that i see that specifically through the again the, the rise of people like you who are taking back witchcraft and feminine and feminism and um, queerness as a source of life itself. Of course, there's going to be opposition to that. And when you were talking about the our fear of death and um, that expression being an act of violence, the first thing that came to my mind, and I want to know what you think also, is our um, is ageism mm-hmm. and how, and by my own experience, how I've one of the ways that I have expressed ageism is by um, stripping older people of their sexuality. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, what are some of the other ways, whether it be ageism or otherwise, that you see us violent, the violence of bypassing death? I think I think the the first thing that comes to mind. I mean, we are afraid of old people. Whoa, whoa! Older people, like yeah. What the hell is that about? 
well, because we can't deal because they're closer to death and we don't want to deal with death, right? Like it's, and, and so like I, when I think about it, I think about like, I'm more afraid of sick people too, right? Like we, it, but it's, it's, it's painful for us to sit with elders when it should be beautiful. And I think the violence comes in is like, we don't hide that discomfort, right? So like, imagine being someone who's, who's, who's aging significantly and, and people are uncomfortable around you. Yeah. Right? Like, there's an avoidance. Um, we, we turn them into, I mean, you know, I think it's, it's out of that discomfort. I don't think it's malicious consciously, but we make jokes about them. Like we make jokes of them, Yeah. you know, and we weapon, we like, we weaponize our fear against them in these, in these really subtle and not so subtle ways. And I think, um, yeah mm. i think there's just a palpable dis discomfort around older people and you know and i'm not i, I want to be really clear like i'm not free of that yeah <laughs> i'm still doing right. my work with that that's like that's right that's right and i i i want to I, I i keep thinking about what is friendship on the other side of trump and other side of COVID, on the other side of um police state white nationalism what does friendship mean and i think one of the things that i really believe in is being able to bear witness to your your healing and your self-development as you bear witness to mine yeah. and you know we my family we're, we're we have a wellness practice that we're creating um out of scratch from our home and I really want to be a proponent of a type of wellness that allows us to be in messy community with one another, nonviolent mm -hmm. messy community as we're unpacking all of our shit. Yeah. Not yes. onto each other, not onto each other, mm -hmm. but I would almost say for each other, like I'm unpacking for you. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my shit out of my suitcase to make room for this next adventure that we're trying to go on. And, the other thing that I got as you were talking was that this work of liberation is almost like we're trying to take everybody with us, that whiteness and capitalism separates us and only certain people get access to the lifelines, to sources of life, to sources of wellness. And that by tapping into all of our stuckness, we're saying, okay, I'm making room for your life too. I don't know how old you are. How old are you, Renee? If you don't mind me asking, I mean. Oh, I, I don't mind. Uh, 37. 37, yeah. Yeah. And how beautiful it is for two people in their 30s to be reclaiming their elders from the inside out. I want to do more of that every fucking day. Which is why I no longer work in nursing homes. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and again, we're, I'm just going to, we're first, we're getting into some of the book. Um, and if anything comes into your heart, I mean, this is literally, let's see this as jazz. Like if something's fun, if, if you want to do a spontaneous song. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I'm going to I mean, it is actually one of the reasons I did not open with Janelle Monet because I, like, I couldn't figure out how to make it sound good without singing it, and I cannot <laughs> sing it. So, it's um. <laughs> all good. Do you remember those um Shambhala toastings that they would do at Thirties oh, and Lord. Under? <laughs> oh, good. I mean, just the San Francisco Center was actually even worse. It was just like. Somebody did warn me the first time. They were like, sip slowly. <laughs> you, don't you, can't, you, you just, you're not going to make it through the first round. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, Lord, have mercy. But um, 
yeah spontaneity is great um spontaneous joy is great um so shit like embodiment happiness and acceptance are the are the themes that i ask renee to join me on and embodiment for obvious reasons because we've talked so much about embodiment and then the other reason why i wanted to talk to you about joy and acceptance is because we're so goddamn angry (laughs) (laughs) or like i said in the other episode we're not angry we experience a lot of anger in our mind and body what the even what even the fuck is happiness and acceptance and can we trust that in the revolution like is that allowed the fuck so yeah like jump Mm. like it that's the (laughs) suit like what do you want to talk about yeah well so can i can i just open up with this one thing yeah um which is which i think is basically how how rod Lamarad, sorry, um, opens the embodiment chapter oh. of nothing fragmented can ever be freed. Oh. And I, one of the, I like, I actually contemplated, I was like, I know that Brandon's going to ask me about my identity markers and maybe that's just what I say. <laughs> Um, uh, but nothing fragmented could ever be freed. It's, it was such a beautiful gut punch. Shit. Um, it's so obvious and... I had a moment of like just stepping back and and just, you know, trying to love myself through all the work I think I feel like I have ahead of me. Um, And really becoming, really living my life wholly from a place of of liberatory love. and so identifying do you find that identifying yourself is a form of fragmenting yourself like naming who you are not inherently yeah um not inherently i think it i think it has been for me I think yeah. there has been a lot of of fragmentation and how I've identified my in my relationship to my identities. Um, maybe is is more is more what's been fragmented. My you know my identities are not static necessarily. Some of them are you know a little bit more fixed in this realm than others. But um, you know, but some of my identities have have felt in conflict. Um, specifically and so uh mm. yeah so that's been fragmenting as hell <laughs> like, <laughs> at times at times and and i'm i think what i'm doing now um is i'm trying to think of my of the ways that i identity identity identify as not parts of who i am But, but who I am as, as a whole person, if that makes sense. Um, like you and I have had a lot of conversations about my being mixed. Um, and, and I've had a lot of struggles with where to, where to fall in, 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 in some places and, and really examining and I, I'm landing on I am I am Arab and Middle Eastern um, and I am white and both those things are are wholly true and I have a responsibility to to them equally. What a fucking responsibility. Oh yeah. 
That's right. And I've experienced the weight of that. Uh, Renee and I co-led the People of Color Meditation Group at Shambhala, which met once a month. Um, and I remember there being some tension about people experiencing Renee, uh, you know, just visually as white and Renee really holding the space for her ancestral connection, right, to her Middle Eastern ancestors and also holding space for how people are responding to the way she looks. And that, I, that's so weighty. Yeah, it's not a, I mean, it's all real, right? <laughs> it's all, it's all real. It all exists at the same time and there's no, There's no, there's, there's no clean answer to that. And I think that's where we, I just, I come back to like, it's okay to be messy. Um, it's okay to be multiple things. And, and there's a responsibility to, for me, like I feel a responsibility um, both to myself and to, to those I'm interacting with to understand the needs of, of, of a space in terms of, of the identities that I hold and how I move through space. Yeah. Do you think that disembodiment and disassociation is one of the ways that it becomes easier to deal with those complexities, those tensions? Mm -hmm. Do you find that that's like or a direct result of like, there are too many things screaming different things and they are right and wrong and at the same time, it's just like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that was one of my earliest lessons. Um, and I say this with a lot of love, but that was, I mean, my dad modeled that, you know, so beautifully, um, for lack of Model a better way to put it. Disembodiment uh, and disassociation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a survival, a yes. survival of not um, of being an ambiguously brown man who who um, gets assumed a lot of different ethnicities. Um, usually, not with a lot of you know, uh, not usually with positive associations. Um, and his answer was to 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 dis disassociate, especially after nine eleven, when things got real hot. Like, um, and so you know, like I have a lot of training, and and mm. and I also say I say that with so much love because I really want to acknowledge that um, it's not a critique of of my father. Um, yeah. he. It actually, you know, I see, I see that he, that's how he got through. And, yeah. I, and I respect and honor that. I don't want that for myself, but, um, but we get, you know, we talk, we talk a lot of shit about dissociation and, you know, unpopular opinion in the mental health field, but I think it, I think it doesn't deserve its, its bad rap. I think it's, <laughs> I think it is a, a beautiful coping mechanism. I think um, how how amazing that when our when we are in danger, that our our brain can create safety. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as somebody who you know is an extremely anxious person and dissociated a lot, and and a lot of that was, you know. I identify as queer, but when I was younger, I identified as bisexual. I didn't have a better word for it. And so not being straight, not being gay, not being white, not being a person of color fully, like walking through <laughs> worlds um, where nobody really knew what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with myself. Um, dissociation saved my life. And as as somebody who grew and, and decided, you know, and, and started sitting and connecting with, with different aspects. Um, I actually think there's a really beautiful practice of, of consciously dissociating, of, of it being, you know, not something that's happening to you as like a shutdown, but as, as, a, as a conscious choice of like, you know, what's best for me right now is to create some space from this immediate experience and maybe revisit it later when I feel better equipped. 
that that sounds like you're giving yourself and so many of us who struggle with disassociation so much compassion and agency over our experience and what i really appreciate is that you did ground it into your practice of meditation and then of awareness mm-hmm. you know and i, I want to talk a little bit more about that and about your practice but i, I just also want to um, locate myself in this conversation um, and get vulnerable about specifically the tension that I feel so much about being a part of um, the black upper middle class mm. and being black and queer and the tensions that arise specifically when we're talking about liberation and and liberating our communities that so often black folk are only thinking about a specific type of black person and how um, my entire life feels like it's been set up to disassociate ancestrally and and disassociate from the communities around me so that I can just have a little piece of that whiteness to secure my comfort. And this book and in this time, I'm having to grapple with my privilege and also with how my privilege has allowed me to disassociate and when that disassociation was for my safety or when it was for my comfort. Mm-hmm. And I'm having to tease that out and it's really fucking uncomfortable because the queer voice is like, well, the black, well, the black, yeah, the black voice is wrong, but the wounded queer voice is like, well, I'm right because no one ever saw me. Mm-hmm. And then the black voice is like, well, you're using your queerness to bypass your, 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 your male patriarchy. It's like, there's so many voices. Yeah. <laughs> and Reverend Angel said that her practice allows her to create space, which I heard you talking about with your practice too, of creating space with all those voices so that you can begin to have a, of a, a relationship, whether that's I'm taking seven steps back or I'm going to take my, your hand and I'm going to walk out in the world with you and do some shit. And so I want to know, like, tell me about your practice. Are like, I, I just started meditating again. It's been really fucking hard for me. Um, these practices, these breathing exercises, these embodiment practices that are in this book are really helpful to me right now. And so I'm just curious about how you see your practice and how you see practice in general during these times. Yeah. So, um, since Shambhala apocalypse, um, (laughs) (laughs) it's, it's been, it's been rocky. It's been incredibly rough. It has been, my practice has been, it, it, I channeled a lot of my Buddhist practice into witchy practice. Yeah. Um, because I felt really fucked up about my relationship with, um, with meditation as I was working through the, the intense heart devastation um when I left Shambhala when we left Shambhala um and I uh I went on a retreat with Rod uh last December um and and I it was amazing and and I thought this is it I'm back (laughs) and I wasn't um, back to your practice uh-huh yeah <laughs> or back to community or both which is private practice both um Oof. and i think that's actually i mean you, you bring up a good point because for me my practice was so i mean i sat alone but my my practice was grounded in community um in a community that like, you know, in, in a lot of ways I had, I had needs met and I thought it was beautiful. And, and it's like, it's like breaking up with a lover that you like, you see all the potential yeah. and you're like, okay, at some point I have to decide it's not my responsibility to convince you of your potential. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And that's like a specific flavor of, of heartache. 
yes, um, I'm going through that right now. <laughs> <laughs> and so it just took me so much longer than I thought um, it was going to. Um, and I've I've sat, right? I've I've come back to a to a to a more regular practice um, of sitting, and I am doing some of the the um, community stuff in Luis Barsha. Yeah, me too. Um, awesome. Yeah, and you know, and I'm just I'm I'm feeling my way through what community and sangha means to me right now. But I know that um, that sitting is important to me right now, and I know that like reconnecting to the essence of my refuge and bodhisattva vows are really really important mm. to me um and that was i took both those vows in shambhala so it was a it was a rocky transition oh yeah yeah thank you and i want to i just want to offer you know when we get off this call and um reconnect this weekend i want to offer uh, how I may be able to be in community with you that feels mutually beneficial. I, I was talking about that. Yeah! <laughs> I got my friend back. I got my friend back. <laughs> oh, okay. That's joy. That's joy. That's happiness. Yes. Speaking of joy. <laughs> so I want to talk about joy. Um, we can talk about acceptance too, but um. You know, I've been feeling really guilty. Lamarad said in one of his uh, talks, he's like, since the apocalypse, uh, which we're in right now, he's like, I've been having more fun than ever. <laughs> I'm like, God. I love him so much. <laughs> he's like, I'm having more Netflix and chill. Like, I just think that is so amazing. And I can attest to in these really fucking awful times, like I've had so much real, 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 real joy. Yeah real joy and i attribute it to the divine feminine i attribute attribute sympathetic joy like i cooked for my niece mm. last week and i was i was on a i was on a week-long fast uh, for a week and it was day six and my mom was like are you sure you want to be cooking you might lose your fast and i was like no and i i'm fine and i cooked for her and i remember just watching her eat and i started crying because i'm like not only does it smell good, but I know what it feels like to have those buttery noodles slide down your throat and go into your belly. And I was yes. just like, I was eating through my eyes. Yeah. It was the most amazing alchemy. And so I want to know what is your relationship right now to joy? What are your practices around joy? And how do you see that being um, either beneficial or not i've had a lot of people be like why are you in joy we have to defund the police we have to put our bodies on the line we have to be you know we have to be stressed what do you how do you see joy showing up for you in this time i mean what's what's more joyful than than participating in dismantling a system that causes so much pain um you know, so I think, I think for me, those are not, I, I've actually found like my moments of joy. Some of my, some of my moments of joy, my, my pure joy have been when I've been most directly involved in, in community that is working their asses off to dismantle oppressive systems. Um, I think it's, I think it's vital to have joy there. Um, I'm not saying it's not serious. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying that we don't need to, you know, adorn certain armor in ways, but like, There's a there's the absence of that is is pain. The absence of dismantling that is pain. And so so for me there's joy there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know you're working towards something that is liberating and that will create joy. It's Precisely. it could be it could also be a simple a form of sympathetic joy in that moment of like, yeah, like I may not see the benefit of this, but someone will. And how fucking beautiful is that? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's an easier, I think that's an easier place for me to in this specific movement because I'm not a body that is most impacted. Right. So, so all of my um, activism is, well, I, I think we all benefit from it directly. And I think ambiguously brown bodies in a different way than white bodies, etc. Also, you know, benefit from it, but um, But yeah, it's a, it's a, it is exactly a, an act of, of liberatory love, like, and I, and I experience, you know, it's not, it's not selfless, like I experience feeling closer to my own liberation there, which is not just happiness or joy but it has that component mm -hmm. in there yeah that's right it's not just that I'm, I'm so glad you said that it's not that's not just what it is but it's there and and for me that's the sign that you are doing work that is sustainable yeah have to be able to sustain herself so we are actually right at the hour um, <laughs> we talked we t you know we there you know like this was the I, I was an anxious mess today so I was like I'm not going to do too much preparation so this was very loose and I think we, we covered a whole lot um, I just want to reflect back to you what I learned from you this mm. is just an inspiration that I'm getting I, I want to appreciate deeply the way in which you continually make me not make me <laughs> but, you, <laughs> but you invite me to look at complexity and look at the relationship that complexity has on our body and our mind. You continually allow me to have compassion for myself when I go into maladaptive patterns because of that complexity, but you just allow me to name complexity in my experience. And you also, I just wanna appreciate the essence of yours, that Renee, you are one of the, your email is the fiercest calm. Mm -hmm. And that is so true. Like when I look at you, I see, someone who is so um, practiced in every moment, because I know inside there's a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> but you're so willing to show up to whatever your experience is. Like no one, like no one I, I know. So I wanna thank you for being my friend. I wanna thank you for, for, show, for showing up. And I wanna just make one last offer. Um, Didi Delgado, you know Didi, right? Mm -hmm. she's, yeah, she's a badass activist and amazing. She's just a personality and she's just powerful. Didi Delgado, she has a podcast. Um, I'm forgetting the name of the podcast right now. She's interviewing all Black queer movers and shakers um, all around the world. Um, mm -hmm. It's a really great podcast. I think it's called the Thick. Oh, I can't remember, but if you do Google Didi Delgado, I will, and I follow I follow Didi on um, on Instagram. So I... yeah, follow her on all things. She's amazing. Yeah. Um, but she has this really uh, amazing ending question, which I I won't promise that I'll always ask it, but I feel moved to ask it right now. But in this conversation that we've had, Renee, is there anything that needs to be said that hasn't been said yet? Hmm. I love you. Ah! <laughs> I love you too so much. So much. Thank you so much for joining me. The Wissy Hickey Wheel in this podcast. Oh, last thing before we close. And um <laughs> Renee, I'm gonna um I'm gonna end the recording and just I just want you to see my face before we, we hang up the thing. Cause I feel weird yeah. having you stare at our logo. It's <laughs> weird. Uh where can people like find you like like everyone has a website blah 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 but like 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 in the future geographically i know you said you're going to start doing death doula work like yeah. like where should people look for you i don't know um i don't really know what the answer to that is i don't i have a very uh i live a very low-key existence um you can follow my cat on instagram hey <laughs> 
I'm in there sometimes too. Actually, there was a very cute picture of us uh, meditating together uh, to Lama Rod's medicine Buddha practice yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, otherwise, I'm, I don't really, I don't really exist in the world in a findable way. Um, right. <laughs> yeah. What's your kitty's I, Instagram? I guess, I mean, like people could, my email is the fiercest calm if anybody is. <laughs> Um, which I also feel like I, I cannot, I should not take credit for because it's a Torayamos lyric. Okay. Um, but you embody it, so. But I, so. but I claimed it early in and. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what, what's your kitty's Instagram? It's Stoops um, with, I think it's nine O's. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> she's a little awesome. grumpy calico cat. Yes. Come on, Stoops. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to close. I'm going to end the recording and then I will um, just for if you have just like a couple of minutes, I'll just show my face and we can close. Okay. All right. Thank you, Renee. And thanks everyone for listening. Thank you. All right. So let me end this recording. Discon no, I don't want to disconnect audio. How the hell do I do this? <laughs> Hold on. I'm going to show you my face first. Um, hey. Hi. <laughs> let me see here. Stop recording. <laughs>